Dr. Luis Sandoval is accomplished in the fields of mental health and spiritual warfare. A medical doctor, board certified in neurology, psychiatry, and family medicine, he is also a psychiatrist for the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange, Ministry of Healing and Deliverance. Now, Dr. Luis Sandoval. All right, well, welcome to doc- the Dr. Luis Sandoval Show here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I am your host, Dr. Luis Sandoval, and it's always it's a pleasure to be here with our listening audience. Uh, today we're going to talk about definitely a little bit more on the scientific side, uh, but really the, the emotional side, the mental side, the um, body side of things. But let's get started here on, at the top of the noon hour on this lovely Thursday afternoon with the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech thee, O Lord, thy grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ thy Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection, through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke and we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl around the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> well, folks, today we're going to talk about um, something very important. You know, some of our listen, my listeners have been uh, sharing stories of themselves or their loved ones who have gone through different experiences. And I'm going to share a couple of those stories um, down uh, later on in the next few segments of the shows. But they've gone through different experiences that they feel have really caused them um, stress, anxiety, and in today's day and age, um, we say stress and anxiety, but I honestly believe that what we experience a lot more of that we don't really talk about is trauma. And that's a whole different level. Saying trauma, you know, we use it as an everyday term sometimes. We just say, gosh, I feel so traumatized by that. But when we look at it from a scientific perspective, from a neurobiological perspective, um, <clears throat> it takes on a whole different meaning because we really get down into the weeds and we define it and we start to look at what does it mean and how does it impact our lives. It's different than saying I have anxiety. What we really need to consider is anxiety is more a symptom of something else. Now, some people do suffer from just anxiety without there being any source. However, when we talk about trauma and today's show is going to be focused on trauma, what we got to look at is anxiety is one of the symptoms of having experienced a trauma. The trauma is the issue. How it manifests is going to be uh, different for different people. But if somebody's feeling anxious, one of the things I wonder is, did something happen in your life that is making you anxious? Is there something there that is manifesting itself with some anxiety, with some malcontent, with some fears, whatever it is that's going on? And that is important to look at. We have to ask this for ourselves because um, we have to know how to approach it. And we look at this especially in the psychiatric realm, um, 
we take a look at this from the point of view of childhood as well. So I think it's so important when I ask people, have you experienced anything as adults were very good at saying, well, this happened to me, you know, my, either my boss, my spouse, somebody I was dating or I was assaulted, different things like that that are very obvious uh, traumas. But what we forget about sometimes is, you know, ever since I was a kid, I have, have not been feeling good. I've been scared uh, constantly or I've been anxious constantly. Um, and I don't know why. I think I just suffer from anxiety ever since I was a kid. And the reality is we have to look at this and ask ourselves, is your anxiety really a result of you having suffered a trauma in your life? And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to kind of get into the weeds with it. We're going to define trauma. We're going to see how does it affect our brains and how does it affect our minds and what do we do about it? Because once we do that, it can be very, very jarring to the soul as to how do I move forward? What do I do um, with what I'm experiencing? But let's get into it a little bit more. Let's see how we define trauma. As always, I like to just do general uh, online searches because I know a lot of times our listeners are not necessarily going to have access to journal articles or anything a little bit more in depth. We're very good at, as we say, surfing the web and getting online and just doing general searches and saying, hey, I'm going to look up trauma. I'm going to look this up. So I like to do that myself because I like to see what are our listeners uh, going to be having access to. And as always, if anybody feels that they have access to anything more in particular or anything more in depth, feel free to send that to me. Uh, you can always email me at doctor, that's dr.sandoval, vmpr at gmail.com. Again, that's dr.sandoval, vmpr at gmail.com. Um, I always look forward to looking at articles and different ideas and perspectives uh, on, you know, different topics, whether they be spiritual, mental health, or physical health. So let's look at trauma. I did a general search and I just said, well, how do we define trauma generally, right? So trauma, it says here, is a deeply distressing or disturbing experience. And they use a little sentence that says a personal trauma like the death of a child. So that's good. You know, it's a, it's a personal, a deeply distressing or disturbing experience. I like that they said a personal trauma like the death of a child because when we talk about trauma, even if two people are in the same place at the same time, we experience our experience is individual because we are individual people. Our experience is personal and therefore the resulting symptoms, the resulting, shall we say, reaction to the lived experience can be very different. And so somebody might say, wow, that was a very traumatic event. I don't know how to get past it. Another person might say, yeah, I was there, but you know what? It bothered me for a couple of days and I'm not as worried now. We see that a lot, especially, I mean, I saw that a lot, especially when um, treating our, anybody who's been overseas in our military, um, you know, people are unfortunately exposed to very harrowing situations, very stressful situations. And two soldiers could come back. Maybe they were buddies. Maybe they were side by side. And one of them can come back and say, wow, that was really, really disturbing. Somebody else can come back and say, you know, I was there. It was disturbing at the time. Man, that was tough. But I got to move forward and, I, and I'm going to move on. How do we do that if we both experience the same thing? Again, the experience is personal. And what can result in a trauma might not be, uh, or what can result in a trauma for one person might not result in a trauma for another person. That's important to know because a lot of times we also discount other people's traumas or their experience if it didn't affect us. So sometimes somebody will say, man, that was really rough. And somebody else will say, no, it wasn't. I was there. It wasn't that bad. Well, what you're telling me is that that was not that bad for you, but you really can't speak for the other person. You really can't say that person was not that traumatized. Um, you know, because we don't know what, what their experience was. We don't know what they bring to the table, shall we say, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and what they experience is going to be very, very different from anybody else in the same place. So, um, 
The other definition of trauma is a physical trauma, so a physical injury, right? So if somebody, uh, you know, has a cut on their arm or what we call blunt traumas where somebody got hit, uh, you know, or something along those lines. So a traumatic, you know, a trauma can be a physical injury. Notice um, the two definitions address the mental and the physical, right? So the first one, again, was a deeply distressing or disturbing experience as a trauma. So the experience being the mental aspect, uh, perceived, uh, trauma. So per, by perceived, I mean that we see it or we, we, it comes through our senses, through our, to our mind. Um, the other one is a physical injury. Um, so the injury is a trauma to our bodies. They don't mention spiritual trauma. And spiritual trauma is on a different level. Why? Because it's going to affect the soul. We can argue in different ways about what spiritual trauma is. So I think that a lot of people say, well, geez, you know, gosh, if somebody was unfortunately abused by a member of the clergy, if somebody, um, you know, experienced, uh, you know, somebody yelling at them in the church, uh, if somebody told them that they were wrong when they were doing the confession, these can all be spiritual traumas. Why? Because these are moments where our soul is engaged. The real question is what part of us is engaged during the experience? Is it our body that was engaged and that's the physical trauma, the medical trauma, the one that needs wound care, the one that needs, you know, a cast for a broken bone. That's easy to see. That's the physical trauma, the bruises that we see. The emotional trauma is a little bit different and it can be a little bit harder to treat because we don't see the emotional trauma. You know, I grew up in a difficult household or I had a really bad relationship or somebody was abusive to me uh, verbally. We don't always see that. And then the spiritual trauma, we're definitely not exactly going to see either because it's a lot more like the emotional or the mental trauma in that the spiritual trauma could be something along the lines of I'm praying, I'm trying my best. And then somebody told me, you know, a priest or somebody who I trusted with my soul, uh, told me something very nasty or they told me something that really brought me down or did something to me. The difference there is somebody could say, well, that was a physical trauma or that was a physical type of abuse or even a sexual type of abuse. But the reality is, Once we're in the church setting, in the spiritual setting, it's a lot harder because it's a spiritual trauma. These are people that we entrust our souls with, that we want to connect on a spiritual level with, um, and if there's trauma in that dimension, then we can even add there that there's a spiritual trauma going on. And there's different levels of that. So that's important to define that because when we're talking about trauma, it's not just as simple as, oh, I was anxious. It's actually something that happened that was very disturbing. Well, okay. So that's how we define it. Let's talk a little bit about what happens to us physically. How do our brains respond to trauma? You know, what's going on in our brains? And a lot of the times in mental health, we easily talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. But again, I think post-traumatic stress disorder, um, it talks about the post-traumatic stress. So we're addressing the stress that we're experiencing from the trauma. But are we really addressing the trauma itself? It depends on who you talk to, right? Because what are we treating? If somebody comes to a psychiatrist with post-traumatic stress disorder and all I'm going to do is prescribe medication, then what I'm really going to treat is what's your level of stress right now and let's address that and bring it down to a tolerable level, shall we say, or hopefully get rid of it altogether. That would be ideal. <clears throat> but am I addressing the trauma that happened? Well, that's what we got to talk about and that's what we got to consider. And that's what we got to consider. We need to pair that medication potentially with therapy depending on each individual we're going to talk about a little bit more about that when we come back from the break because first i want to see how does trauma affect the brain what's going on in the brain itself what parts of the brain are being affected and why okay more when we come back from the break
All right. Well, welcome back to the Dr. Lee Sandoval Show here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. As always, wanted to reach out to our listeners and say thank you so much for reaching out to me. Uh, if I haven't gone back to you uh, recently, it's because I've been getting a lot of information, a lot of messages. I've been trying to answer them one by one. Um, if it's been a little while, feel free to send me a new one and say, hey, Dr. Sandoval, what's going on? I tried to reach out to you and I was not able to connect. Um, <clears throat> always happy to answer questions. Don't always have all the answers, but hopefully we can have some guidance. Uh, you can feel free to email me at doctor, that's dr.sandovalvmpr at gmail.com. Today we're talking about an important topic because I think it's one that is much more complex than the definition would lead us to believe. And we're talking about trauma. You know, we talked about the definitions of trauma a little bit before the break. So that trauma can be mental or emotional, where it was a result of a deeply disturbing disturbing experience. We said that it can be physical when we have a physical injury, right? We talk about the trauma units on the hospital. Uh, somebody has unfortunately a broken limb or something along those lines. <clears throat> we said something happened and we can see that. But there's also spiritual trauma. And that's when we you know, feel that something happened in our soul, something that we uh, entrusted somebody else with, or we felt violated spiritually. Um, and that can be very, very hard to heal because I don't think that we necessarily talk about that much. It sounds very simple to say trauma, but <clears throat> let's look at this topic from a different perspective uh, in terms of how does it really work? What are the different components? And is it much more complex than simply saying, oh, we have to get over it, or you just need a little bit of therapy? Well, let's look at this. So, I'm reading from an article that I actually like because I think that it summarized how trauma affects the brain itself very well. Um, and this is what the article says. There are three specific areas of the brain that are impacted by traumatic events. The first is called the amygdala. <clears throat> this is important because the amygdala is not a 100% primitive uh, part of the brain, the brain, the way that the brain stem is. So if you look at a brain and you hear the, the term brain stem, the brain stem is actually what controls our sleeping, our waking, our just being alert, our just existence part. The amygdala would be part of the midbrain. It comes up a little bit more, so it's a little bit further on in the evolutionary development of the brain. <clears throat> but the amygdala is very, very important. It helps to control our emotions, our survival instincts, and our memory. So it's very, and it's linked to a part of the brain called the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is linked uh, or it helps us to develop our learning. Remember, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But first, the first structure I want you to understand is the amygdala. Why? Because <clears throat> the amygdala is really our center for fear, right? So why is fear important? Dr. Sambo, why would I want to be scared? Isn't fear bad? Aren't we just talking about that trauma is terrible? And why would I want to have fear associated with it? Actually, fear is a very, very important and wonderful emotion for survival. Think about it this way. While we're on this planet, we better have a sense of fear. When we get to heaven, there will be no fear. Why is that? What's the difference? Well, the difference is that in heaven, there will no longer be danger. And here on earth, there is danger, right? Because of our fall, we're in an imperfect place. We're in perfect planet. As beautiful as this planet might be, there's always going to be danger lurking around, whether it be real danger, perceived danger, but we have an understanding of something called danger. That's what happened with the fall. Before the, before the fall of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve did not know any sense of danger. They did not have any sense of danger. They did not have any idea of danger or of anything bad. And that's why the knowledge of good and evil, now we have knowledge of danger. That did not exist before in the brains of Adam and Eve. And when we get to heaven, it's no longer going to exist in our brains in some way because we're not going to be concerned with it. But here on this planet, we have to worry about danger, whether it be, and you're saying, well, Dr. Samuel, how does that work? 
I think it's pretty obvious, right? If we find ourselves in the jungle and there is a tiger there, well, I better have a sense of danger. I better have a sense of what we call fight or flight, where I better move, I better get out of the way, I better hide, I better do something to survive, right? And that's where the amygdala helps us out. The amygdala registers that and lets us know that there is something going on. It controls the emotion of fear. Notice I said emotion, survival, instinct, and memory, because it helps me to, first of all, get that emotion of fear going on. I better survive. My instinct is going to be to run or to get away from this sense of danger. And it's going to be linked to my memory because why? If I'm ever in the jungle again, I'm going to say, I better remember that there are tigers here. I better not come into the jungle every time like it's brand new and not have the sense of foreboding or warning or alertness. And that's what the amygdala really helps us out with. So it can be a very, very good thing. However, if we experience trauma, when we do experience this trauma, it, the amygdala can actually become hyperactive. Okay, so it starts to work overtime. It starts to work when we're no longer in danger. So you've left the jungle, you are now quietly at home and in a relatively safe environment where there's no danger lurking, but the fear is still there. And that's a problem. Why? Because we're out of that sense of fear, but it's not going anywhere. That can be pretty scary. And this, the article says, uh, Actually, it talks about this. So it says the amygdala can become hyperactive, making the person intensely aware of everything around them, right? So you're at home, you're you're fine, but every little noise, every little sound of the wind, every little crack, you're walking a creek on the floor. Oh my goodness, it's like that fear of the tiger being right there. It says this is the brain's way of making sure that the person is able to get away from people, places, or events which might cause them harm. This can make it very difficult for someone to relax, sleep, or find joy in activities outside their comfort zone. So that's the first thing. That's the first part of the brain that's activated. Notice, why is it that if I experience an event, it becomes traumatic for me? What does that mean? It means that my amygdala, my brain reacted to the event, and now it can be hyperactive, and now I'm reacting to everything. And now even if I'm not in danger, my brain, my body, and everything feels like they're in danger. This is what the really hard part is of any violation of any fear, is that it leaves us with a sense of insecurity right? So we're left always worried about getting yelled at, getting scared, getting hit, getting whatever it was that the trauma was, um, can leave us with a sense of foreboding. Um, the next part of the brain that's impacted, we call it the hippocampus. So I mentioned that, and that area of the brain is learning and memory. Notice now we have a link between the amygdala and the hippocampus with memory, but the hippocampus is going to link the memory to learning. Let's look at what this article says about the hippocampus. Studies have shown that people who have experienced traumatic events may have a smaller hippocampus than those who haven't. Research has shown that this may be due to hormones that are released when someone experiences frequent high levels of stress. Prolonged exposure to these hormones can damage or destroy cells in the hippocampus. People with post-traumatic stress disorder may have a hard time forming memories, but may have vivid memories of the trauma that they experience. Situations that remind people of their trauma can cause feelings of extreme panic and fear. So if now there's different types of trauma, right? This one in particular said that the hormones that are released when someone who experiences frequent high levels of stress, right? All of a sudden they have this exposure and they have these hormones and can start to destroy the hippocampus, which makes it hard to learn new things. Why? So the brain is just focused on the trauma, focused on what happened because now everything's hyperactive and the brain is saying, this is the only thing you can think about. There is no way to think about anything else because otherwise you will not survive. So this is where, how do we heal from that? How, if somebody has experienced trauma, we've already said their amygdala is hyperactive. So they have an increased sense of fear. Uh, and they remember that now because that's linked to the hippocampus, which is linked to the memory 
and the learning, but if it's overactive, our cortisol levels are going to be up, our hormone levels are going to be up, they're going to be toxic hormones, um, and especially if this happens over time, and then we're not going to be able to learn new things. We're not going to have a sense of new memories. Why? Because the learning is, is going to be restricted to strictly focusing on the trauma. The hippocampus is not going to focus on anything else. It's going to say, hey, this is all that matters, and it's going to keep that sense of trauma pretty vivid, maybe not at the forefront for everybody, but maybe just below the surface so that it's easily triggered, so that it's easily brought back up by different things. Now, how does somebody go through life like this? How do you share this experience with other people? It's really hard to, because other people might say, oh, you kind of got to get over it, or, you know, and it might not sound good, but when people say that, when somebody tells somebody else to get over it, what they're really saying is, "Mm, I don't like that. I don't like hearing about what your trauma was because it makes me uncomfortable. So let's not talk about that anymore. And that can be really hard, right? Because the other person, whoever experienced the trauma doesn't feel heard. However, if that's all that they talk about is that that's their whole source of conversation, that can be really hard to form friendships because the other, us as people, we can't constantly be in a state of trauma. We can't. And if somebody else is constantly relating their trauma to us and that's our sole conversation with them, that's going to be taxing to us. It doesn't mean that the person doesn't care because let's say that they've heard about the trauma once or twice after a while, they're going to say, okay, we got to get over this. We got to move forward. Right? So, okay. So that's the second part of the brain. So we've talked about the amygdala, which we said was to control the emotions, survival instincts, and memory. And then we've talked about the hippocampus, which links the learning to the memory. Okay, the third part of the brain that's gonna be important is the prefrontal cortex. Why is that important? Because it's what regulates our emotions, right? So we have this trauma, our fear is up, our learning is there, uh, or reduced depending on the length of the trauma because we've talked about trauma as a singular event, but some people do experience trauma over time. Whatever you were in an abusive relationship for years or people say, gosh, you know, I had a very abusive parents and that's the household I grew up in. And however long I was in that household was pretty abusive. So if we experience that trauma over time, what is that doing to our brain? What is that doing to our being able to regulate our emotions? Let's read about the prefrontal frontal cortex a little bit more. So the free prefrontal cortex helps to control the activity of the amygdala. So it goes back to that first structure we talked about, goes back to the amygdala. People who have not experienced significant trauma, their prefrontal cortex will signal to the amygdala at certain situations where people are safe. So if you haven't had much trauma, the prefrontal cortex is telling your amygdala, it's okay, this is safe, and that is safe. This will calm down the fight or flight, so it helps regulate it that way. It sends the signal back, as we say in the brain, and it tells the amygdala, don't be turned on, don't get hyperactive at this time. However, however, in people who have experienced trauma, the prefrontal cortex will have a hard time regulating fear and other emotions. Remember we said that the prefrontal cortex is going to regulate the emotions. If we can calm our emotions down, notice how everything else settles because I say, you know what, I'm just going to calm down for a little while. Wow. Okay. The rest of my body's settling, my amygdala settling. However, if I can't regulate that emotion and I'm constantly in fear or in concern, what's going to happen? Um, it's going to tell the amygdala keep working because my emotion is anxiety. Um, and my emotion is fear and this is what's happening. So the amygdala, we have to let them know, stay active. This is what the article says. It says this can lead to frequent feelings of panic and anxiety, as well as dysfunctional reactions to situations that are not harmful. So this is what we need to understand, especially if we're going to treat somebody who has experienced trauma, or if we're going to live with somebody who has experienced trauma is that their brain is now wired in such a way that it's actually telling them to be afraid. And this is why people say, I don't know how to not be afraid of that. I don't know how to calm that down. I don't know how to get rid of 
reacting with fear to everything. Because notice what this last sentence says. This is very true. This can lead, so if we have an overactive prefrontal cortex or a prefrontal cortex that is only registering fear, this can lead to frequent feelings of panic and anxiety, as well as dysfunctional reactions to situations that are not harmful. This is where we really have to be patient with anybody who's experiencing this. Why? Because all of a sudden we're going to be having a good time or we're going to go somewhere and this person's not going to know how to relax. They're always going to be saying something bad's going to happen and this is very, very traumatic. So what does this mean? Um, this means that we have to help the brain form new pathways again so that we're not hyper aware so that the person experiencing that is not experiencing, well, that they're going to have that memory, right? The memory is going to be hard to get rid of. But the question is, how do we react to the memory? We have to start controlling the emotions. And that's what we're going to talk about when we come back from the break. Now that we understand what is trauma, and it can, as Catholics, we've got to talk about it from a physical, mental, and spiritual level. We want to understand, since we are a body, how does that work in our brains? And we just talked about those structures. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about how can we actually do therapy? What can we do to help somebody who is experiencing this? What is our approach? More on the other side of the break. All right. Well, welcome back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You're listening to the Dr. Luis Sandoval Show here uh, on this wonderful Thursday afternoon. I hope everybody's having a good day. Today, we're talking about a difficult topic. We're not getting into the profound details yet, or I haven't gotten into the profound details yet. We're talking about trauma and what that really means, because I think that we're really good as society to talk about anxiety and everybody's worried about this. And I was watching the news and boy, it really made me worry, or I was you know, concerned about this or that. And one of the things that we really need to consider is... Um, what is that really doing to us though? So I feel worried, but is that doing something to my brain? Am I being traumatized? And I don't use that word in the uh, colloquial every day. Everybody says, oh, I'm so traumatized by that, which really means it was disturbing. It upset me. Um, but I mean it more in the scientific mental health, physical health, spiritual health kind of way, where we look at this from a clinician's eyes and we have to ask ourselves, yes, there was a bad experience, but is there trauma? And I guess the best way I could equate that or, or give an example of that is when we talk about physical trauma. Physical trauma is the easiest to see, right? So when we look at somebody, they fall down and what, what, you know, you're with your kids or you're with, you know, going around and somebody trips and falls. The first thing we ask ourselves is, are you hurt? right? But what we're looking for is we're really looking for the physical signs, right? Somebody falls down and we say, hey, don't move. Let's, you know, wait, hang on a second. Let's make sure, are you bleeding? Does anything hurt? Are you able to move your limbs now? Go slow, go slow. Can you move your arm? Can you move your leg? Wherever it was that they fell. And then we start looking for what? There are any abrasions, right? Was, was there any break in the skin? Do we see any surface abrasions? Is there any bleeding? And then if there is bleeding, okay, well, hang on a second. There's bleeding, but is it just on the surface it, or did it, it go deeper? Is this, how bad is this cut? Did they gouge themselves out? Okay. And we get to the point where all of a sudden we can see maybe in, in professional sports, say something like American football and the person says, oh my gosh, they broke their leg. Oh, the bone came through the skin. We can get to really bad physical trauma and we can see that. And that's easy to talk about in terms of the physical aspect, the body aspect, the what do we need to heal? Do we need a cast? Do we need a brace? Do we need a bandaid? You know, and there's all different levels. The harder part is not so much the physical trauma, but the 
emotional trauma. That's what we're really talking about here. And the emotional trauma, we're going to link a little bit to the spiritual trauma. Keep in mind when we talk about, when I talk about the emotional trauma, it can be mental or it can be spiritual. And so is this something that happened intellectual trauma wise, or is this something that happened more on the level of the soul for me? We're going to equate those a little bit, not that they're the same thing, but we're going to equate the process just a little bit. Why? Because these are the ones that we can't see and they can be the result of physical trauma or it can be the result of an emotional trauma or a different kind of abuse. How can we talk about the difference or geez, how, how do we see that? Or how do we come to understand that from a clinical perspective? What we have to understand is how long did the the, the trauma happen? What was happening? What was going on? Let's give an example. Let's say that somebody was playing professional sport and they say, Oh man, I was playing basketball and I blew out my knee and now I can't play anymore. That was a really bad trauma. Gosh, it really ruined my, I had hopes of going professional. And this happened when I was, you know, a little bit in high school and then in college, it really got bad. I couldn't go on to play. And that was really hard for me. But, you know, I went on and I became a, I don't know, accountant, a businessman, something, I got a good career and I'm happier now. Okay, great. That's wonderful. You know, but yeah, I experienced some physical trauma. The bigger question is what's the lasting effect? So that trauma we can see. Now, what if somebody says, oh, I got a paper cut. And we can say, oh man, paper cuts, boy, those hurt. Those hurt really bad, right? And so, gosh, it's harder because you can't really see them and you touch something the wrong way and you have a paper cut. Man, that's pretty tough and it's so painful. Uh, Make sure you get a Band-Aid around that or you just got to give it a little bit of time to heal, but it's a paper cut. Now, if somebody's going to compare those two, they're going to say, well, you can't can't really compare a paper cut to somebody blowing out their whole knee, right? Are they walking with a limp? You know, what's going on with the knee? Do they need surgery? Do they need knee replacement? The paper cut hurts a lot, but boy, that heals really quickly. Okay. Yeah. And you're going to say the paper cut can't be as bad as somebody blowing out their knee. Well, this is where the psychological part comes in because the question is, we we're comparing them on a physical level to say that the paper cut, obviously from point of view of trauma, it's not going to need surgery. It's not going to need somebody to be, you know, taken out on a gurney from the basketball court or anything along those lines. It's going to be painful. Maybe you wrap a bandaid around it. So it's not so sensitive to everything you touch, depending on where the cut is. It's going to heal over time, but it was just a paper cut. Yeah. We know how bad that hurt. However, we got to look at the context and this is where the psychology comes in. This is where the therapy comes in. Yes. Blowing out your knee on the basketball court is pretty bad, especially if you had high hopes of having a professional career or something along those lines. However, if you were able to move on, have a career, you might reminisce, you might think about, gosh, I wish I could have had a professional athletic career, but guess what? I'm having a a fine career otherwise. And I miss that. Now, am I going to compare that trauma to somebody who says, you know, every time I see a paper cut, it reminds me of growing up because whenever I did something wrong and I didn't think it was wrong, but if my mom or dad or my caretaker uh, got mad at me and, and, you know, because I didn't tie my shoes right, or I wasn't wearing my uniform right or something, they would give me a paper cut and they would, they would make sure that, you know, they bring a piece of paper over and they make sure I cut my finger. And that way I learned to not do that again, to wear the right clothes, to not forget my sweater at school, you know, to not, um, trip, uh, at school because I, my shoelaces weren't tied well. And every time I got a paper cut, well, now that paper cut takes on a whole different meaning. It's not just a paper cut. It's a whole event. It's, there was something surrounding that. There was an abuse surrounding that paper cut. And that's really what we're looking at. Now I'm using the paper cut as an example because we can see that we can see the, the physical trauma on skin or something along those lines. But what if it wasn't the paper cut? What if every time somebody did something that was deemed unacceptable, say at school or anywhere else, Um, they were told mean things, you know, they were told that they weren't good enough or they were made to feel like they were not good enough 
or they were made to feel like they were never going to be spiritually okay or that God was never going to love them or that God did love them, but you know, their prolet could get away with anything, any kind of abuse or something along those lines. That's what those are the, we don't see those, shall we call them paper cuts or big traumas to the knee or whatever that trauma is. We don't see that emotional trauma, that spiritual trauma. But if that keeps happening, it keeps happening over time. All these events take on that meaning. I'm going to be punished if I think for myself, if I do something for myself, if I'm in that process. And that can be really hard to heal because let's say that that happened to us in, in childhood and we grow up and we become adults. And how do we let go of that? How do we let go of that? Especially if we saw that our brain now has this programming. So as that's happening as kids, our brain's being programmed a certain, programmed a certain way. How do we reprogram the brain? How do we create new pathways? Well, let's look at a few different things. Let's look at a few different definitions. I'm going to attach this article um, to this talk. It's called, it's relating something that um, is not brand, brand new, but um, is talked about more and it's called trauma informed care. If anybody's ever used this, it's, it's pretty nice. It's pretty effective. Um, but you have to know what you're looking at. And one of the things that I like about trauma informed care is that it kind of breaks down the idea of trauma, not just anxiety, but the event and what do we do to help reprogram the brain more than anything else. So it talks about complex trauma. And one of the important parts of this article, let me read just this one sentence so we can kind of set the stage here. And it says many children and young people found in places like child welfare, mental health, special education, and justice settings have been exposed to trauma in their early years. This is true. And remember when I say trauma, I'm not going to define the trauma because trauma can be different to, to different people. And it might be something simple or what might seem simple to everybody else that causes trauma. And it, for that person, it was a huge impact. Okay. So, and then it says that there is a differentiation between a couple types of trauma. Type one, what we call acute trauma, and acute just means it's happening right there in the moment. Somebody hits you and runs away, you got mugged, you go away. Acute trauma, that happens right there in the moment, or uh, which results from exposure to a single overwhelming event, just like I gave examples. Um, and type two, which is complex trauma. So let's talk about complex trauma. So. Another name for complex trauma is developmental or relationship trauma. And this is where it gets a little bit harder. Why is this important? You know, we talk about psychology, about relationship trauma, but why is this important spiritually? We're going to talk about that in just one second. But this says, this defines it as uh, complex trauma, or again, relationship trauma, which results from extended exposure to traumatizing situations. Okay, so extended exposure to traumatizing situations. Like I said, grow up in a difficult household, you grow up in an abusive situation, or we're in a, an abusive relationship over time, um, and that we call co complex trauma. Now, yes, from a psychological perspective, we take it for granted that we are in in relationships or relational um, situations that if there's if there's an abuse over time, that's a problem. From a spiritual perspective, from the way that we're built spiritually, we have to understand why is this an issue? Why well, why can't we just get out of relationships? Because God didn't make us that way. So this is where it gets a lot harder. This is where, you know, our relational trauma is much deeper because God made us social creatures. We are the body of Christ. We have to interact with each other in a certain way. And if that interaction is abusive, then that's an abuse to the body of Christ. This is where the spiritual component comes into the trauma. We have to interact with each other. This is where Jesus said, love one another. Why did he say that? Because of this, because Jesus himself is telling us, if you don't love one another, you're going to cause trauma to each other. You're going to cause trauma to ourselves, actually, because we are of the same body. So if I mean to somebody else and very real way. I'm being mean to myself because we are connected in that same body. I'm ruining, I'm causing damage to the body of Christ. And all of a sudden we have a problem because I'm causing damage to myself. 
when I try to heal and uplift and bring people up, especially in a relational setting, because that's what we have, especially if they're your family, um, then we're healing the body of Christ. But when we cause issues there, when we get mad at each other, when we yell at each other, we're going to cause trauma. Okay, so let's read a little bit more on this, um, just to say here, um, there's an expert here called uh, Bezel Van Vanderkolt, um, and he describes complex trauma as the experience of multiple chronic and prolonged developmentally adverse traumatic events, events most often of an interpersonal nature and early life onset. So that's the big deal right there. Remember, just like I said, spiritually speaking, you're not going to find this in any spiritual, probably in any spiritual book. Um, we're built that way. So we don't have a choice but to be kind of traumatized by each other, if you will, or to be uplifted by each other. Notice that that's where the trauma happens in our interactions. Um, and if it's been going on over time, then it's damaging. This is what hurts Christ. This is why Christ said we've got to become like little children. Little children are very easy to play together, to get together, to get upset at each other. But then guess what? They start playing again and they forget. They have this wonderful way of forgetting that they were ever enemies at any time. They come back together and they heal and they say, I'm sorry. And it's very simple. I think Christ wants us to be very simple with each other in that sense too, to remember that we are going to build each other up and not have this sense of trauma all the time. So what happens when there is complex trauma? What is the outcome? Let's read this article really quickly. I think this is a, a good um, section of the article and then we're going to break down the context of healing very easily. Oh, we're going to do that when we come back from the break. I hear the music because once we experience this, now we're going to put things together. Our brain has already formed connections. If we're over a period of time, our brain is going to take a long time to change those connections around. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about different ways, different modalities that we can approach trauma and how to heal. All right, well, welcome back to the Dr. Luis Sandoval Show here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Luis Sandoval. Welcome to the clinic. Uh, for those of you just joining us at this time, today we're talking about trauma and the importance of trauma, and not so much the individual events of trauma, um, but the result of the trauma, the result of the brain. Why is it that it continues with us? What are we going to do to heal? Um, and what impact does it have? Like I said, we're very good in psychiatry at pointing out post-traumatic stress disorder, but we're talking about a different kind of trauma here. We're talking about the lasting effects of, actually not a different kind of trauma, but the lasting effects of the trauma, not just the immediacy of it or the intensity of it. You know, I've had a few uh, listeners write to me, one of them uh, was talking about how they had been abused as a child and how this was very hard for them to ever find forgiveness, uh, to ever move forward or to trust um, other people and ever be in a healthy relationship because they weren't sure that they knew how to be in a healthy relationship that had not been their experience. Um, another person had written to me and said that, you know, they had felt like the church had abused them in different ways. It wasn't a direct abuse as we hear sometimes of clergy abusing children, but they felt that there was a betrayal of the church and they started to feel that where they were, they had been working for a church organization, a Catholic church organization, and they started to feel that really the sense of Christ was not there. The reason they had started to work there was because they felt that, you know, working under the umbrella of a diocese of the church would bring them closer to Christ, would improve their spirituality. And they thought that they'd be working with what they felt would be like-minded people. And they really felt um, 
disappointed to say the least uh, in terms of feeling like, you know what, at the end of the day, I felt like it was just a business. And I felt spiritually very, very hurt because where is Christ? If I'm at our church itself, if I'm in a church environment and all it comes down to is just business, well, what does that mean for my faith? You know, if the leaders of the church themselves aren't really focused on their faith um, and aren't really trying to foster that environment, that was really hard for that person. And so, um, you know, different experiences that we have in that, uh, that can lead us to a state of mental, spiritual, or physical insecurity um, can be very hard to deal with. So let's look at this. <clears throat> this article is uh, actually pretty good. I'm going to go ahead and put a link to that um, because at first it's going to talk about the outcomes of complex trauma. And I think that this is actually well written. So I'm going to go ahead and read a couple paragraphs here, not very long, and then we're going to talk about how do we help heal the trauma. So the first thing it says, following exposure to acutely traumatizing events, some people develop the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. We talked about this, right? So post-traumatic stress disorder. These involve the repeated cue-triggered involuntary re-experiencing of the terror and helplessness, often through nightmares or flashbacks. A focus on avoiding cues that might be reminders of the trauma, hyperarousal and hypervigilance, problems with concentration and focus, and an exaggerated startle response, <clears throat> right? So that's what, uh, those, that's part of the criteria that we use. So if you wanted to look at all the criteria the psychiatrist uses to diagnosis, um, you know, you'd have to do a little bit more of an in-depth review, but this is what happens. You know, this is what we use to uh, ask people about their acutely traumatic experience. You know, are they experiencing memories, nightmares? Are they hyper aroused to the world around them? Do they startle easily? Um, these are all things that can tell me, hey, maybe you're experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. And that can be very, very challenging. Right. But again, that talks about the acute situation that talks about you had one big moment in your life that caused trauma. Well, let's keep going on and let's look at the next part. It says, although many traumatized children do experience these symptoms, many of them do not fully meet the formal diagnostic criteria, which were originally formulated with adults in mind. And this is what's true. So this is when we look at post-traumatic stress disorder, we really get it from the perspective of the adults, not the kids, right? You had, a, uh, and by adults, I mean, you can look at adolescents and things of that nature. One of the challenging parts is that we always have this term, we have this saying that we say, oh, kids are resilient, right? And what I would say is, I don't know about resilient, depends on how you define it. I would say kids are non-reactive when they're little because there's not a whole lot they react to, right? They're being told where to go. They're being told how to dress. Everything's picked for them. Yeah, they can ask for certain foods or things of that nature. But at the end of the day, they rely on mom, dad, a caretaker, somebody to get them dressed, get them going and get them about their day. They don't, they're not autonomous in the sense that they can just go and take care of themselves. And so it's really hard for us to as kids, be able to explain to somebody that we're hurting or that we're in pain. Usually we're quiet. We don't say much. And that's why as adults, we say, oh, kids are resilient. Well, I don't know about that. You know, we can say kids might not react as much, but keep an eye on them because as adults, then we start to express what we feel. Trust me, I see so many people that I treat who with their experience and their trauma and their anxieties and the symptoms we're treating are a result of childhood experiences. You know, I would never think to myself as kids as being resilient. I would think of myself as kids are experiencing trauma. They might just not be able to express it. They might not have the cognition, the development, the, the mental um, ability at that point in time, and they're maturing, um, to express it the way an adult can once we've learned more vocabulary and concepts. Right. For kids, things are simple. I think that's what really Christ meant when he said, you know, be childlike, keep it simple. Heaven is simple. Christ taught us in parables. So 
What I like about this trauma-informed care is that it really breaks down things into a simple, much more simple nature. So we continue with this and it says, um, given that the exposure to complex trauma usually takes place in an early age and the exposure is sustained, the developmental impacts tend to be more pervasive. So again, it's sustained and it's happening as we develop. The brain-based stress response symptoms of these children appear to become permanently changed as they focus attention on the need to ensure safety rather than on the many growth-promoting interests and activities that secure children find that secure children find attractive and stimulating. So we talked about the brain before. We talked about the brain parts, the amygdala. We talked about the hippocampus, and we talked about the prefrontal cortex. And we said that those are more primitive areas of the brain um, rather than the cortex. And the cortex is where we get our creativity, where we get our stimulation, where we really get our joy for life. But if we've experienced trauma, it's hard for us to use the cortex, the creative part of the brain, because we don't feel secure or safe enough to do that. And that can be very, very hard. So there's a quote here that says, traumatized children reset their normal levels of arousal. Even when no external threats exist, they are in a constant state of alarm. Sound familiar? It sounds like PTSD that we talk about in adults, right? In particular, such children come to view adults as potential sources of threat rather than sources of comfort and support. In substitute care, the school settings such as and school settings, such children are often described as hypervigilant because they constantly scan the environment for potential sources of danger. A recent neurological study of people who were in the vicinity of the events of September 11 um, in New York found that their brain threat, de- excuse me, found that their brain threat detection systems were significantly overactive a full five years after the events of that one day. If it is if it is as if their brains have become permanently retuned to the possibility of harm. And so when you look at that, so this example is that people who were there at 9-11 in New York, uh, they did a study on their brains five years later, and it seems like these areas that we talked about are hyperactive. And this is five years later five years later after one event that was obviously very shocking, very um, scary as it was imminently life-threatening. However, if we look at the developmental brains of children, and this has been happening over time, and how are you going to change that? How are you going to help to heal that? Because now the brain has changed in a way that they're always going to be scared. That's where people, a lot of times you see people who just go through life scaring and you say, oh, that's just an anxious person. Well, okay, they're experiencing anxiety. That's a symptom that they're experiencing. My question is more why. What's going on there that they are experiencing? Now, if somebody did experience something that we would define as a trauma in early childhood or in their life, and it doesn't seem to be affecting them. They say, oh, Dr. Samuel, you know, yeah, I did experience some trauma. You know, I, I know other people th- think it's terrible, but I've moved on in life. I've got my career. I've got a family. I'm, I'm, I feel I'm doing well. I don't necessarily feel that we need to go back and revisit all those events. They're not affecting them. They feel like they're in a good place. They're not experiencing all hypervigilance or anxiety or anything along those lines. So it's okay to say, yeah, I experienced that, but I moved forward. I think that we can actually create more damage sometimes if we start getting into the weeds on that or we start wanting to ask details. It really depends on how it's affecting the person's life. You know, there's no need to disturb something. The brain is also very protective that way. But if we are experiencing constant anxiety, constant worry when there really is no need for it, if we don't know how the how, how to get the brain to just relax, that can be very, very hard. And so how do we approach that? Well, there's a three-step modality when it comes to healing um, complex trauma. And three-step modality is this. First, we got to create 
a sense of safety for the person. Because remember, that was what was jarred. There's always a sense of danger in the brain. So we actually have to create a sense of safety that again, the brain, the same way that the brain was constantly exposed to danger or abuse, um, or even if it was just a one-time event, but we're talking more about the complex drama over time. Um, then all of a sudden we have to allow for safety over time. We have to get the brain used to a safe environment. It's really, really hard to do because if the brain's used to danger, everything can be dangerous. Anything can be dangerous. If you talk to anybody who's an expert in combat or something along those lines, they'll tell you, you know, when it comes to self-defense, they say anything's a weapon. You can use anything as a weapon. You can turn anything into a weapon. But if we're going to know that, then by the context, we, anything can be loving as well. We can change something that might be dangerous as loving. Well, Dr. Sandoval, how could you possibly say that? Well, we can take a look at something like a knife. We say somebody's carrying a knife. If I say that, most people will say, whoa, why are they carrying a knife? What's going on? Versus if I say, oh, somebody's cooking in the kitchen and they needed to cut some fruit. Okay, that's a whole different scenario, two different scenarios with the same tool. So a knife can be very, very scary. It can cause trauma. It can, it can be a, a tool for death or it can be a life-giving tool when you use it for food. And that's what we're really trying to do here. Um, we're trying to reprogram the brain. The first pillar again of trauma, what we call trauma-informed care is safety. We're gonna create an environment where the brain now gets used to not everything around is a dangerous tool, but can actually be very loving. And we gotta do that over time. We gotta do that constantly. We gotta make sure that it is something that is thought about every day and present every day for the person, for the brain of the person to perceive, because that's how the healing is gonna take place. So that's the first pillar. Anybody who's experienced trauma, whether it be ourselves or whether it be a family member or a loved one, the first thing we need to do is create a safe, what people call a safe space, but not a safe space. We need to create an environment of safety. We need to have really a sense of safety where the brain starts to recognize that there's no danger around and start to settle into that. Now, we can't be naive either, and we have to be aware of the dangers of life. So if you're going to cross the street, you still want to look both ways. If you're going to be, uh, if it's nighttime in your home, you're going to want to lock your doors. There are dangers out there. But what we want is the brain to get used to focusing on a safe environment, not just the dangers of the world. We need to make the safety a greater quantity, a greater percentage of our time, or a greater percent of our brain exposure um, than anything else. The next pillar is connections. We have to make strong connections. Once we make, because the, the trauma came from a broken relationship, from uh, an abusive household, an abusive relationship, something along those lines, we have to, in now a safe environment, start forming positive connections. Connections to other people, having positive relationships. And then the last pillar is managing the emotions. This is what gets really hard. Remember, the prefrontal cortex is gonna manage, manage the emotions. So we're actually addressing those three areas of the brain. The first is the amygdala for safety. The second was the hippocampus for making those connections. And the last one was the prefrontal cortex for managing our emotions. If we can create a safe space where we manage the emotions and make positive connections with other people over time, this is gonna create new neurons, new form, new pathways in the brain that's gonna let the brain know it's okay. We can heal from a traumatic experience and we can turn our lives to positivity. We don't have to be anxious all the time. There's the music. We're going to talk uh, next week again on our show. I hope today's show was helpful. And I hope anybody who's experiencing trauma finds peace through safe connections and managing the emotions. Until next time. <laughs>